can't believe we haven't done this before. Oh, wow, look at that. State Farm agents are there when you need them. I'd like to file a claim this morning, or at least try to make one. That ought to be our slogan, church, that like a good neighbor, Christians are there. In Luke chapter 10, a scene is set for a heavyweight matchup between a lawyer and Jesus, except the lawyer has no clue that he's overmatched. Now, a lawyer in the first century Israel is more like a professor or a professional academic as opposed to an attorney specializing in criminal or law like today. This guy is actually proficient in parts of the Old Testament that you and I are probably too scared to read or we think are the most boringest parts of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, the Torah as it's known, the law. This guy has dedicated his entire life and career to knowing these books of the Bible. He's memorized them, and he knows them backwards and forwards. In fact, it's how he makes his living, because he debates with other guys just like him on how to interpret what Moses said in those books of the Bible. And he also is prepared for when people want to come up and ask him, and what, what does this law mean? I know what some of you are thinking. There's only 10 commandments, right? How can there be so much to know about 10? Well, in reality, there's actually 613 commandments. Because remember, lawyers get paid by the hour. And so what he's doing is he's combing back through all 613 of these laws that Moses was given to, by God as the blueprint for how to live covenant community with God. He's asking, what does this law mean? What are the implications of this law in this particular setting? Do we in the first century interpret this law differently than Moses did nearly 2,000 years ago? And so this guy who has a lot of questions and who's dealt with debating all this time, who's essentially a Ph.D., classically trained Old Testament scholar, has gotten word that this hot-shot ragtag rabbi or teacher named Jesus is in town. This rabbi from Nazareth has gained notoriety and amassed a sort of cult following in the region. He's mesmerized and enthralled the people with teaching and preaching like no one has ever heard because he spoke like one with authority. Except he didn't earn a degree from the top seminary or a law school like this lawyer did. He wasn't a student of Gamaliel or any of those other world-class scholars in the Old Testament literature at the time. And this lawyer, I have a suspicion, is just a wee bit curious to see if Jesus is all he's cracked up to be. So Luke says he's come to put Jesus to the test. He's come to hear Jesus' understanding of the law and see if he can trap him. To expose Jesus as a fraud. He's devised a plan to ask Jesus where he stands on a controversial issue. And maybe, just maybe, he can box Jesus into a corner on something and get Jesus canceled. Oh, 
wouldn't that be the ultimate prize? The thing this attorney can go back to all his friends and talk about. Gloating that he bested this so-called one who speaks with authority publicly in front of everyone. What better way to earn some street cred among his peers? So this anonymous lawyer goes for it right out of the gun. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This question was actually debated and disputed among the rabbis at the time. Because as they boiled down the law, what really was the essence of the law? And by implication, what did people need to do to attain eternal life? The life to come. When God restored all things, made all things new, who would be included in that world? What did someone need to do to be a part of that world? This is a loaded question. But Jesus responds with a loaded question of his own. He tended to do that. You ever wonder why Jesus always answered a question with a question? Well, why not? What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And instead of answering the question outright, Jesus throws the ball back into the lawyer's court and says, you're an expert of the law. What do you think? This guy, more than most people ought to know, Jesus knows the lawyer can offer an excellent answer to his own trap questions. So what do you say, counselor? You tell me how someone inherits eternal life. The lawyer responds with a couple of Bible verses many of us likely have heard before, maybe in Sunday school or Awana, because we've been told this, this is what Jesus said the greatest commandment was. Because in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is asked of all the commandments, which of them are the most important? Jesus then combines two verses from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5, also known as the Shema, and Leviticus 19.18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But in Luke, Jesus doesn't offer this summary. Instead, this lawyer does. It's a curious difference in the Synoptic Gospels with some suggesting that perhaps this lawyer has actually heard Jesus offer this summary of the law someplace else. And so being clever or being cheeky, he simply restates what he's heard Jesus say. We don't know. Again, this is a lot of speculation, but typically rabbis had their own summary of the law. Jesus was no different. So maybe this lawyer, again, is still trying to trap Jesus by reciting Jesus' own summary of the law back to him. But at any rate, Jesus affirms the lawyer's answer. But having the right answer doesn't mean you know God, Fred Craddock rightfully points out. Winning a Bible trivia not a Christian makes... You can memorize the Bible word for word, read it every day, post it on Facebook, get a degree in biblical scholarship, and even become a professor, but still miss the point. Jesus doesn't tell the lawyer, great answer, you're my greatest student. Rather, Jesus said, go and do. Because you never fully understand scripture until it's lived and breathe. Practice what you preach as the adage goes. If you embody what scripture says, if you incorporate it into your day-to-day life, if you love God and others, it's far better than any burnt offering you can offer and you won't be far from the kingdom of God. Interestingly, Jesus took what was implicit in the lawyer's initial question. Did you see this? What should I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus accentuates the verb more than the object of the preposition. 
to inherit eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, begins with living as recipients of the kingdom right now, walking and talking and making decisions and choices like we're already in the kingdom right now. It's not something we wait to do in the future. One has to wonder how the lawyer is feeling right now. His test, his contest with Jesus is likely not going as anticipated, so probably feeling a bit embarrassed, but also driven to make himself look good, wanting to justify his actions, he poses an even more hotly debated question to Jesus, this time going for the jugular. Who is my neighbor? Since you say love your neighbor as yourself, then who is My neighbor, how broad and how wide and how expansive is that neighborhood you're talking about, Jesus? How many people am I commanded to love like myself? Again, this was a fairly common debate among rabbis. Because if you go back and read Leviticus 19, which I know none of you will actually do, but if you were to go back and read Leviticus 19, Leviticus doesn't tell us who our neighbor is. Even the verse the lawyer quotes, right before the part that we know, says, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against a fellow Israelite. So it kind of sounds like the neighbor is a fellow Israelite then. And that was the leading understanding among the Jews, that they were to love their fellow Israelite to a greater degree and even to a detriment to anyone else that wasn't. Especially not a half-breed Samaritan, not a smelly pagan Gentile, especially not those enemies, the Romans, anyone that wasn't one of them who didn't look like them or sounded like them or believed the same stuff as them, that didn't count as a neighbor. But here's where things get a little tricky. If you kept reading in Leviticus in that same passage, it reads, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Ooh. So who's the neighbor now? Is it still just the Israelite? Or is it the stranger that lives among you, the immigrant, the outsider? This is the question. This is the debate. And the lawyer is now muddying the waters and creating confusion and ambiguity all in an effort to get himself off the hook and to justify himself but lure Jesus into a trap. And incredibly, Jesus takes the bait And this is the part of the story that we're familiar with. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Presumably all those listening to Jesus intuitively picture a Jewish man, though it's never explicitly said. But this Jewish man is traveling a 17-mile stretch of road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Carney is closer to us than that. And it was a steep descent down from Jerusalem because the city was on a mountain. If you recall from the Old Testament, Jerusalem rested on Zion, the mountain of the Lord. So if you were going to leave the city from any direction, you were going to go down. But from Jerusalem to Jericho, that was a 3,600-foot elevation difference. It's a pretty significant hike. The road itself cut through across barren and rocky desert country. So picture in your mind less a wide paved road and more a nature trail, a dirt path out in the middle of nowhere. All traveled either on foot or by animal in an era before cell phones and AAA. 
the desert path between Jerusalem and Jericho had this reputation of being the stomping grounds of hoodlums and robbers and criminals. Thieves took advantage of the caves that lined the road as it wound through the desert, jumping, jumping travelers as they passed through. Reminds me of a little blue astromech named R2-D2 after crashing on the desert planet Tatooine who found himself all alone journeying along an isolated remote path through the rocks. Maybe you've seen this part as he looks over his shoulder like someone's watching him only to be surprised and ambushed and captured by the Jawas hiding in the shadows. I wonder if this well-traversed desert road was kind of like that that you had to have eyes in the back of your head walking through this den of thieves or this valley of the shadow of death. Because as this man will quickly find out, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, because he randomly gets ambushed by a group of predators, Jesus says a gang of bandits mugged him, stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead lying on the side of the road in the ditch. I'm sure there were some listening to Jesus that day who knew exactly where Jesus was talking about. They knew this road. They may have even traveled on this road themselves, and they were probably all shaking their heads, thinking to themselves, this poor guy, he should have known better. What a fool. You don't travel down that road by yourself. In fact, this man probably gets what he deserves. But Jesus keeps going because he says, by chance, a priest happened to be walking down that very same road. Priests were the equivalent of pastors in those days. They were responsible with assisting people and getting access to God, serving as mediators between God and the people, interceding on behalf of the, of the people to God through prayers and rituals and sacrifices. All of this happened in and around the temple in Jerusalem, with the priests serving twice a year for one week at a time. So likely this priest who happened to come down this very same road that day appears to be headed home to to Jericho, having just finished his time of service in Jerusalem. We expect Jesus to say, like a good neighbor, a priest was there. Because surely this pastor will lend this dying man a hand. Surely this pastor, surely this clergy member, will help this guy. But instead, Jesus says, when he saw him on, and he passed by on the other side. And before you think this priest simply crossed to the other side of the street, remember, this is a narrow path through the wilderness. This priest is having to make a concerted effort to get around this helpless guy lying half dead and naked in the dirt probably tiptoeing around this man, doing everything in his power to not come into contact with him because he doesn't want to get near him. A bit of stranger danger, perhaps. Or perhaps he's just doing what he's trained to do. Following the law, he argued. He's well aware of the strong warnings in the Old Testament about becoming ritually and spiritually unclean from coming into contact with a dead corpse. He doesn't want to render himself unclean and then have to quarantine himself when he gets back home in Jericho because he would have to disqualify himself from doing his job temporarily, let alone not be able to spend time with his family that he hasn't seen for a while. Maybe we should let this priest off the hook. Best to pass by on the other side because there's just too many red flags, too much risk, too many unknowns, 
But Jesus' point that this supposedly spiritual person has deliberately not helped this man. But just as it so happens, Jesus says, likewise a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the translation we read actually helped smooth out what Levites did. They were assistants or helpers to the priests. While all the priests were Levites, not all the Levites were priests. And many were just simply musicians or gatekeepers or janitors doing all the mundane and routine tasks to help pull off all the activities at the temple that the priests were supposed to do. And so the assumption actually is, is that this Levite knows that there's a priest ahead of him going down the road. And so he knows that this priest has passed by this guy, and if the priest didn't help him, then he doesn't want to upstage his boss, so he's not going to help him either. Again, this is a little bit of a speculation, but it kind of helps flesh out the story that the lawyer and all those listening to Jesus are imagining in their minds. Because Jesus reveals that another righteous person is on this same road of this unnamed man and has now been overlooked one more time by another righteous person. And perhaps we all want this Levite to redeem the first guys in action somehow. And maybe this time Jesus would say, like a good neighbor, a Levite is there. This active church member, this deacon, this praise team member, this Awana volunteer, this active churchgoer will act. But no, we're let down because Jesus says again, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then Jesus says one of the most shocking plot twists ever. Like a good neighbor, a Samaritan was there. Because a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now, Jesus' original audience would have never expected his story to crescendo this way. No one would have anticipated that the third person in Jesus' story would be a Samaritan. We know that he's coming down the road because we've heard this story too many times, but suspend that for just a moment because they had no clue that the third guy arriving to the scene of the crime would be a Samaritan. Everyone expected an average, ordinary Jewish person to show up on the scene. Jewish society was structured in such a way that it was priests, that it was Levites, and that it was everybody else. So logically, it makes sense that the third person would just be somebody else that's another Jewish person, especially in this place and on this particular road in the middle of Israelite territory between Jerusalem and Jericho. But the last person any of them expected was a Samaritan. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They hated and despised them for centuries. And maybe you already know this, but if you don't, can I just give you a really quick Bible lesson? I'll promise to make it really short. A long time ago, the nation, the kingdom of Israel was split into two countries after King Solomon's death. Ten tribes in the north formed the kingdom of Israel, with their capital city being Samaria. And two tribes in the south formed the kingdom of Judah. One day, the, king, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by an evil empire known as Assyria in 722 B.C. And as a result, most of the population in the northern kingdom of Israel was either killed or they were deported and assimilated among the vast territories in Assyria. 
but there was a small remnant of Israelites that survived and remained in that once northern kingdom now lying in ruin. And what happened over the generations, an influx of foreigners, of Gentiles, migrated into the region, and they intermarried with the remaining Israelites there, and their children and their offspring became what we now know in the first century as the Samaritans. And so in the eyes of the Jewish people, The Samaritans ceased to be pure-blood Israelites anymore. They were now a mixed race between Jew and Assyrian, Jew and Gentile, half-breeds, mudbloods, if you catch my meaning there. In the eyes of every first-century Jew living in Palestine, particularly those living in close proximity and in the same neighborhood, Samaritans were now fraternizing with the enemy. And with each generation, the divide between Jew and Samaritan widened. The Samaritans read the same Bible as the Jews. However, they interpreted it very differently. And the most important part was that they believed God called his home, not at Jerusalem and on Zion, but in Shechem on Mount Gerizim. But this was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to the friction and the bitter tension between these two parties. The title that we've given this story of Jesus is, The Good Samaritan would have sounded like an oxymoron to all those listening to him because there was no such thing as a good Samaritan because they were all bad. They were ceremonially unclean, religiously heretics. In fact, the only good Samaritan was a dead one in their eyes. And if you think I'm being a little harsh, in the previous chapter, the disciples James and John were so offended that the Samaritans did not let Jesus into the village that they wanted him to call down fire from heaven to annihilate them. The Samaritans deserved only the wrath of God, not eternal life. But here... 41 verses later, unlike the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan sees the injured man, has pity on him, and begins to care for him in dramatic ways. This unidentified Samaritan, Jesus says, was on a journey. We don't know if it was to Jerusalem or if it was away from Jerusalem. We're just not told. We're just simply told that he was going about his life when he saw this man that he did not know and he had compassion on him. The word rendered compassion only appears two other times in Luke's gospel. Once in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus sees a funeral procession, a widow had just lost her only son. And Luke says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And then he raised her son back to life. Again, the word appears in Luke 15 and another one of Jesus' famous stories. A prodigal son has run away from home and he's coming back after forsaking his father and hitting rock bottom and listen to the language of this story. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and wait for it, felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So when I hear Luke saying this so-called good Samaritan is walking in the footsteps of God's son and even God the father, because he's now going to incarnate what that kind of godly compassion is for us, friends. It's a whole host of verbs. Did you see the verbs in the story? Did you hear them? Have you ever paid attention to them? Going over to him. Changing his plans from whatever they were that day, deliberately detouring his journey, his life, and placing as a higher priority this stranger. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with oil and wine. 
he begins performing basic first aid using whatever resources he had, wine as a disinfectant because of the alcohol, and oil as an ointment, as medicine. And he bandaged his wounds, perhaps ripping off his own clothes and even other fabric that he had to make some sort of makeshift bandage. Then he put him on his animal. He picks up this man and lays him across his own animal, a donkey or a horse, whatever he's traveling with. And then he has to walk, not ride like he was with this man, with this man on his animal, however long it takes to get to the nearest town. Maybe it's Jericho. We don't know. But he then takes him to an inn, a public establishment or a hotel where he rents a room. And before you think this is something pretty easy to do, The Samaritan is actually bringing in a wounded Jewish man into a Jewish town. And this is actually probably a little bit of a gamble. He's riding into town as an enemy with a wounded Jewish man draped over his horse in the heart of Jewish territory. So the underlining assumption will be from everyone in town is that this Samaritan is probably the one responsible for this man's injuries. Maybe they might retaliate against him. But that doesn't appear to phase the Samaritan because all that matters to him was that he could take care of this stranger. And before you think the Samaritan's done, he's not even halfway done because the next morning, after taking care of the man all day, the Samaritan then took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will pay you back. Denarii were silver coins that were worth about a day's wage. And the Samaritan is paying this innkeeper two full days' worth of a paycheck, all for the sake of this Samaritan who he happened to stumble across yesterday on his journey. And then he opens a tab, and he tells the innkeeper, if you spend any more money on food or whatever, I'll pay you back because I'm coming back. Because notice the Samaritan isn't going to abandon this stranger until he knows for certain that he's okay. This Samaritan has expended a tremendous amount of his own time and resources and energy and finances to help this naked, half-dead, unnamed stranger. And unlike the priest and the Levite who failed to do anything that the law prescribes, Jesus now chronicles numerous ways in which Samaritan cares for a needy stranger. This Samaritan has gone above and beyond the mandates of the law. wonder if this man that he met even knew he did any of this because in my mind he's still unconscious resting now peacefully in a room instead of on a ditch on the side of the road Jesus then asked the lawyer which of these three would be a neighbor to this man no one has been asked an easier question but the lawyer cannot answer the question the one who showed him mercy is what he says he can't even get himself to say that it was the samaritan the polar opposite of who he was and not to mention that priest and the levite he can't do it his prejudice and racism and bigotry won't allow him in this brief moment to consider a samaritan as a positive role model even though that's exactly what jesus is saying because he says now go and do the same 
I've heard this story God knows how many times, and I'm sure many of you have too. What's something new that stuck out hearing this story this time around? Maybe in this season of life, hearing the parable of the Good Samaritan sounded differently to you. Can I tell you some things that stuck out to me this time? And I'll be really quick with this. I was reminded, friends, that loving my neighbor is not a to-do list. It's a commission. It's a charge to become something or more like someone to embody something. It's a state of being that I'm supposed to attain. The lawyer wanted to know if he can be a neighbor to a select few of people, likely people that who are easy and convenient to love. He wanted to whittle down the list from a lot to a few. But Jesus says, rather than worry about being who is a neighbor or who is not, the heart of God's law and the call of God is to be a neighbor to anyone who is in need. Jesus has flipped the lawyer's question on its head, and by reversing the perspective, Jesus changes both the question and the answer. He makes the call no longer one of assessing other people, but of being a certain kind of person. It's one's behavior and activities. It's one's decisions and choices, because loving your neighbor is a commission to dance to a different rhythm of life not to integrate some sort of religious checklist into our already guilt-ridden consciences. It's a posture. It's a predisposition that activates whenever we're walking along the journeys of life and come across someone in need. We don't need to be told to be a neighbor. We just start being a neighbor. Neighbors are people with a heart that does more than pump blood. It sees and it feels and it serves. Loving your neighbor the way Jesus is talking about, it's a lifestyle. It's an innate desire. It's a longing. It's what I think David Brooks, a writer for the New York Times, calls a eulogy virtue. Eulogy virtues are virtues that are talked about at your funeral whether you were kind or brave or honest or faithful, were you capable of deep love? These are characteristics we're not necessarily born with, but they're made within us. And Brooks laments in his article that our culture doesn't invest much in teaching and instilling and inspiring eulogy virtues anymore. Our culture and our education systems, Brooks writes, spend more time teaching what he calls resume virtues, which are the skills and the strategies you need for career success, things that you bring to the marketplace. But many of us are clearer on how we can build our career than how to build our character. And maybe that's why our world is so deficient in good Samaritans these days. More people are keen to be like the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. I'm not saying that there's not nice people out there, many of whom would probably identify themselves as Christians. What I'm saying is that this world needs more people embodying this kind of kingdom ethic, of surrendering and sacrificing one's own interests and desires and plans and agendas and resources and welfare out of love for another human being made in the same image and likeness. And I 
think it's possible, friends, because the next thing that I got from this story, and I know I'm running late, but the next thing I got from the story is the humanness of the Samaritan. There's nothing supernatural that he did. There's nothing he did that we couldn't do. We can be the Samaritan because he's not a superhero. He's a normal person. We've come to think of this good Samaritan as some sort of superhero who did some extraordinary things, but Jesus points out that this guy is someone that's just doing ordinary things. The only thing extraordinary is that the religious people did nothing. You don't need to go to a conference to learn how to be a good Samaritan. You don't need to get a self-help book to be a good Samaritan. Because if you really boil it down to, all the Samaritan did was be fully present with the man. He sat in his pain, met his immediate needs, mobilized others to help him. He showed compassion to the man, not simply kind words and sentiments, but he showed action. He didn't simply throw money at the man, but he saw that this money was used to help this man. Perhaps God has us journeying down the paths that we're on with the skill sets that we have, with the resources that we have come to possess, to be in the right place and the right time to love a particular person lying exposed and forsaken by the world. Because I think the Good Samaritan can be anybody. It could be that lawyer in the story, and it can even be you, because it's a one-size-fit-all, so long as you're willing to do what Jesus said. Go and do the same. Maybe all it takes is to love our neighbor is obedience, to trust and obey. Because sometimes we make loving a lot more complicated than Jesus said, Bob Goff says. And I'm inclined to agree with him because he says loving each other is what we were meant to do and how we were meant to roll. Will it be messy and ambiguous and uncomfortable when we love people the way Jesus said to love them? You bet it will. Will we be misunderstood? constantly. But extravagant love often means coloring outside the lines and going beyond the norms. Loving the neighbors we don't understand takes work and humility and patience and guts and means leaving the security of our easy relationships to engage in some tremendously awkward ones. But we need to love everybody always. Jesus never said these things would be easy. He just said they would work. And this brings me to my last observation. I'll make it really quick. Be trendsetters. The Levite did what the priest did. What do your actions say to those that come behind you on the road about loving your neighbor? Maybe to that next generation that's right behind you. Do people see your footsteps rocking around people or over people and never stopping and helping? How are you communicating loving your neighbor by what you do to those behind you? What impression Are you leaving on them? Because actions speak louder than words, friends. In closing, I couldn't talk about being a neighbor without mentioning Mr. Rogers. For over 30 years, Presbyterian minister Fred Rogers opened his television program on PBS by donning his signature sweater and sneakers and singing, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you please be mine? my neighbor. And in closing, Fred Rogers said this, we're all on a journey, each one of us. And if we can be sensitive to the person who happens to be our neighbor, that to me is the greatest challenge as well as the greatest pleasure.
Because like a good neighbor, Christians are there.